0: Well, friends, this morning I'd like to direct your attention to 13 verses 1 through 4. That'll be our text this morning, Mark 13, verses 1 to 4. And I am going to read, in fact, the whole chapter of Mark 13. We're beginning a four-week journey through this chapter, and it kind of all hangs together. So I'll read the whole chapter, then pray for God's blessing on our time this morning. Mark 13, verses 1 to 4. And, of course, this is one of the Gospels. The he there is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your, but be on guard, I have told you all, things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour... Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. God, we bless you for your word and for sending Christ to reveal you to us in the fullest way. We trust that the words you've revealed in Mark 13 are for our edification, our encouragement, our fellowship with you. And we pray that you grant me wisdom and grant me faithfulness to proclaim these words, and to proclaim Jesus, whom they reveal to your people, to great profit and edification. Please lift your name up in our midst and open the ears of your people to hear your word, to respond with faith. And if there's any here who don't yet know Christ, we pray that they too would come to him for the first time in faith, even today, and find abundance of salvation and rest for their souls in him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Man faces the unceasing temptation to locate glory in our outward religious creations. Now, this can take institutional form. Things like buildings or decor or organizational structures or web presence or graphic design or immersive worship experiences. Or this can take, uh, this idea of outward religious creation can take personal form. Like when we do our righteous deeds publicly in order to be seen and praised by others. When we're on the path of pursuing these impressive religious works, again, whether it's more institutional or individual, we are unable to see that the way that God discloses himself would actually look backward and foolish to us. It makes no sense to people who are seeking these impressive and glorious displays of religion. In Mark, we see that God has come as a humble savior to save humbled sinners. He comes to save through the foolish message of the cross. And he comes to be a king who rules by dying. And we can be so attached to self-made religion that we have no room for a Christ who displays his glory most fully by his humility. In view of this disorder and this problem and this need, today God is going to remind us of where the glory really lives. And here it is, in short. God's presence is not in the buildings of craftsmen, but in the body of Christ. God's presence is not in the buildings of craftsmen, but in the body of Christ. Now, you might say, fair enough, but what's interesting is that the way that God teaches this lesson in Mark 13 is by giving us a big dose of eschatology. Eschatology. Now, what is that? What does that word mean? It has to do with the end or the eschaton. It's the teaching of the last things as God has revealed them to us in Scripture. Now, Mark 13 is Jesus' longest speech in Mark all of the what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a version of this speech, and it's called the Olivet Discourse. And it is eschatological. It it concerns events to come after Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. And as we'll see in the next few weeks, some of the events he talks about lie in the future, even for us. But our text, verses 1 to 4, what we're looking at this morning, represents the doorway into that discourse. And it starts with Jesus making a prediction, and then four of his disciples follow up and ask for clarity on that prediction. And then over the next three weeks, we'll see Jesus answering the question, the questions from his disciples. Now, eschatology, biblical texts like Mark 13, if we're honest, come on, these can confuse us. These can intimidate us. If we're honest, most of us, I believe, would rather ignore it and avoid the headache. A few others get really intense about it and want to nail down all the details and then turn into that chart guy (laughs) who has all the events laid down in a careful, exact, bulletproof chronology. And uh, whether or not we feel we understand it, eschatology can also just kind of feel irrelevant to life sometimes, arcane. Who cares if chart guy is right or wrong? Who who cares if I figure this out or not? What, what does it add to life to know these things? What's going to happen? To put a finer point on it, why does the mostly, I believe, Gentile church here in 2024 need to hear about predictions made nearly 2,000 years ago about events, I'm going to argue, many of which took place only a few decades later. Well, I'm here to tell you that biblical eschatology, while it's a little bit harder to pin down than chart guy might hope, is a lot more profitable and useful and relevant than most of us fear. And over the next four weeks in Mark 13, we'll see Jesus telling us important things, not just uh, useless information about the future, but things about true spirituality, Things about the nature of the church, things about God's sovereignty over history and the future, and the nature of the time that we inhabit between Christ's two advents or his two comings. And if I do my job right, by God's grace, we'll all learn to wade into eschatology on the one hand with kind of carefulness and intellectual humility, but also to better see how powerful and life-shaping these truths can be for us today. Now, there are many details about the future that God has chosen not to reveal. There's a whole lot about the future that he doesn't say. But the things that he has told us are not given just to satisfy curiosity. It's given to shape us and to purify our lives with the hope of what's to come. So that's a big picture of where these next four weeks are going. Uh, But for now, let's zoom back into our lesson for today. Again, we're looking at kind of the entryway, verses 1 to 4. And again, the point is that God's presence is not in the buildings of craftsmen, but in the body of Christ. And our passage demonstrates this point by drawing our attention to three roles of Jesus. We're going to see three roles of Jesus. The first is this As the rejected cornerstone, Jesus rejects the stones. As the rejected cornerstone, Jesus rejects the stones. So in the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples are on the way out of the temple, and one of the disciples remarks to Jesus, Dang, this place is amazing. Jesus, do you see these stones and these buildings, these structures? And this isn't just the sanctuary itself. There's actually different Greek words for like the, the main building, the sanctuary, temple. This is the word for the whole complex. There's a bunch of different buildings, took up a big swath of Jerusalem. And they're talking about the whole thing, and they're saying... Isn't this amazing? And contemporary written records and also archaeological finds have demonstrated what the disciples were talking about. Uh, This temple area stunned visitors with its ornate works of marble and gold. And in John 2, we read that it took Herod and his successors 46 years to build this temple. There were a lot of people working for 46 years to build this thing. Uh, The Jewish chronicler Josephus. Who is a contemporary of Jesus claims that the temple used stones that were as large as 37 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 12 feet tall. Can you imagine seeing a stone that large? And they're like stacked on each other. They're built, stuff is built with stones like like that. We would be slack jawed if we were transported in time to Jerusalem in this time and seeing these buildings. This was a stunning, impressive monument to Israel's God and its religion. So Jesus hears this astounded comment, and he he says something in verse 2. He takes a hard pivot. He says, oh, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He says, you see these buildings, these stones? Well, they are all coming down. Now, this pronouncement doesn't just appear out of nowhere. If you've been with us walking through the Gospel of Mark, you've seen a record of events with Jesus in the temple. Uh, He's leaving here. He's been in the temple for a while. And uh, this announcement is just really the climactic conclusion of what's come before. Going back to chapter 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he visited the temple. And the next day, he came back, and he turned over the money changers' tables, and he drove animals away, and he said, You've turned... Uh, my father's house into a den of thieves, quoting from Jeremiah 7. They're abusing the holy place of God's worship. And we had this thing about the fig tree. Remember the fig tree on their way to the temple? Jesus had looked for figs and didn't find any and said, you'll never bear fruit again. And then when they're leaving the temple, the fig tree is dead. And the disciples are like, what happened? And he's, essentially, this is a picture of the temple. What happened is that when Jesus came and visited his temple, he found fruitlessness in Israel's religious system. When God visited his temple, he found it fruitless. And so he cursed it to never again produce fruit. So the temple action, it's often called the cleansing of the temple. I may have called it that. If you go back at the sermon on that, I don't know if I called it the cleansing of the temple. It's more of a symbol of judgment, than an act of trying to clean up house the idea wasn't like we'll we'll make things better and and tune things up a little bit the idea is like god is done with this place i'm going to show that by this this prophetic action of turning over tables etc and then that that action kind of um that that judgment against the temple is kind of climaxing on this conclusive he's saying it is coming down it has become a den of thieves and god is through with this place the reason for this divine verdict becomes even clearer in the, the material between those, between chapter 11 when we saw him turning over tables, etc., to here. Because all through chapter 12, Jesus has been in the temple, and Israel's religious leaders have been lining up and taking turns challenging his authority, trying to trap him and trip him up. Then he evaded every attempt and only further cemented his authority as the God-sent one. And after all that, this is the crowning moment. The temple has been judged and found wanting, because Israel has judged Christ and found him wanting. God is rejecting the temple because the temple and the nation have rejected Jesus. And what we're going to see after this discourse of chapter 13, when the action picks up again, we get into chapter 14, and the events just accelerate rapidly to Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. That's their expression of their judgment against him. It's like what God said to Israel in Micah chapter 3. It was kind of similar. He was condemning Israel's leaders for leading the nation into sin and covenant unfaithfulness against him. And he says there in Micah 3.12, Therefore, because of you, Zion, the holy city of Jerusalem, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of stones, and the mountain of the house, that's the temple, will become a wooded height. It'll be like returning to the state state of nature, like an uninhabited post-apocalyptic picture. Israel has rejected Jesus, and by rejecting Jesus, they have rejected the God they are claiming to worship. Remember at that moment in the Mount of Transfiguration, back in chapter 9, Jesus' inner circles are up on the mountain with him, seeing his unveiled glory, and what did the voice from heaven say? What did God say? This is my beloved son, Listen to him. So if you don't listen to Jesus, the beloved son whom God sent, you have nothing to do with God. Whatever else you may claim about your relationship to God, you want nothing to do with him. Borrowing Jesus' own words from back in chapter 12, he was quoting from Psalm 118, the so-called builders of God's house have rejected the cornerstone He's saying that's me. I'm the cornerstone, the builders have rejected me. This is the main thing that the temple is even about and they've missed it. And so because they've rejected the cornerstone, they have built, so to speak, they've built their temple with other stones but not him. And so here he is rejecting the stones, so to speak, of their temple. And he's saying it's all worthless. It's all godless. And so it's all coming down. There's a famous scene in the the prophet Ezekiel, chapters ten and eleven. There's bits of it in both chapters where the prophet has a lively vision of he sees the glory of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem on this act of judgment against their sin. Of course, this is connection with their exile. It's a stinging act of judgment against their idolatry. They they worshipped idols in the temple of God. It's a stinging judgment against their failure of His covenant and their abandonment of the Lord. And just like in Ezekiel 10 and 11, when the prophet saw the Lord's glory depart from the temple of the sinful nation, so we have here a similar moment. The Lord's glory incarnate in the Son, is leaving the temple in a decisive way. Now, sometimes a person thinks that he's passing judgment against something bad, but in reality, that something bad is, is not bad. It's good. And so by passing judgment against it, he's really, ironically, passing judgment against himself. Think of a food critic who comes to California and considers himself a discerning palate and tries his first (laughs) in-and-out double-double. And tries it and says, yuck. This is gross. This is overrated. I want a Whopper instead. Now, what would that tell you about this critic? I would say he's a poor judge of food. (laughs) I would say he's showing himself to be an incompetent critic and to lack discernment and, and to be all messed up. He thinks he's passing judgment on this food, but he's actually passing judgment, in my humble opinion, on himself as a food critic. And so it is with Israel. In passing judgment, they have measured Jesus and found him wanting, and all that means is shame on them. They're fine with their temple, they're fine with their sacrifices, they're fine with their scribes teaching the law of Moses, but all this shows is the utter worthlessness of their entire system because they don't want Jesus. Now, I talked earlier about the false security that we might feel in our religious creations, whether that's institutional or personal. There are all kinds of ways that people have done religion in a way that leaves Christ behind. And, uh, and it's, it's these outward buildings. It's these outward structures, whether the conduct of our lives or what we do as a church. This is taken on the form of ornate church buildings or vestments thrown we've seen in the Roman Catholic Church. Hitting closer to home, we have modern-day Protestant equivalents of things like social media presence and audiovisual excellence and worship services, thinking like we can, we can display glory here by the things that we build. It's the same with our personal lives, that we can make an outward show of our devotional practices. We think of Jesus talking in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount about prayer and fasting and almsgiving, and talking about people who do these things in order to be seen and praised by others. And he essentially curses that, and he says, well, that's all the reward you're going to get. It means nothing to God. Some of us might also be drawn to overt forms of uh, separation from the world's impurities. Not that it's bad to do that, at times, but we might want to be seen conspicuously, refraining from certain practices because it makes us look holy in the sight of others. There's all sorts of ways we could externalize and, and show glory, so to speak, by the externals and is separated from Christ. The sad case of Israel's temple and worship system puts us all on notice. Am I looking for a religion that satisfies earthly longings for power? and status, and and measures up to earthly evaluations of worth. Are we trying to impress the world? Are we trying to impress men with our religion? Are we missing Christ? Once again, the drumbeat continues. Throughout Mark, we've seen, let the non-believers, let the Gentiles have their earthly greatness. When his disciples were debating about who is the greatest, what did he tell them that true greatness is in his kingdom? Back in chapter 10, he said, it's to be the servant of all. Just as the son of man, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's true greatness. It's humility. It's service. It's being a servant of others. And this is where we we find true glory. It's in the divine son and Lord who came to become our dying servant. So we've seen that as the rejected cornerstone, Jesus rejects the stones. The second role we see of his is this. As the true prophet, Jesus tells the future. As the true prophet, Jesus tells the future. Now, even if we as God's people recognize that uh, the apparent glory of man-made religion is only an illusion, we might get that, but we can still be left feeling with this sinking sense that we're not on the right track, uh, that somehow we're missing out. The world is on its path for glory. It's seeking its praise and doing things the world's way. And if we reject that, we can still feel like, are we really, are we missing out on something? Are we really in the right place, headed in the right direction? As we wait for God to finish fulfilling his promises for us and for the world. Will God really keep his words to us? And in verse 3, Jesus and his disciples have crossed the valley to the Mount of Olives, and and from there they would have a panoramic view of all that beautiful temple complex stuff across the way, across the valley. And in this setting, in verses three and four, four of his disciples approach him asking in private for further explanation. Now here's where I'm gonna do some throat clearing that gets us ready for the next three weeks when we get into the weeds of Jesus's uh, predictions Next Sunday, we're going to look at 19 verses. Today, we're looking at four verses. So, I'm going to get some of the preliminaries out of the way today so we can kind of jump into it a little bit more directly next week. So, note, what did Jesus say would happen? The temple, verse 1, or verse 2, he said the temple will be torn down, will be thrown down. And then, so the four disciples ask him for follow up, they ask him for clarity about this pronouncement. And they ask two questions. The first is, when will these things happen? And secondly, what will be the signs that all these things, which I believe is the same reference, and when he says these things and all these things, it's the same stuff, what you just said, what will be the signs that they're about to happen? So when will it happen, and what will be the signs that it's about to happen? So we're asking about timing and signs. Now this is an important key for navigating the rest of the chapter over the next three weeks, because Jesus is going to answer their questions. The event will be the destruction of the temple, which wound up occurring 37 years later. Uh, History tells us in AD 70, uh, under the Roman general Titus, there was a Jewish revolt. Rome reacted, they came, they invaded, and they ended up destroying the temple and much of Jerusalem. And um, in the rest of the chapter, Jesus will answer their questions by talking about what won't be the signs that this is about to happen, what will be the signs that this is about to happen and the culmination of the end times in his second coming. Now, that last element might seem out of place. It might confuse us. We're getting questions about the temple coming down. Why is he going to talk about his coming in the future? Especially now that we know, in the benefit of historical hindsight, well, that last part comes a lot later than the other stuff. Why would he start talking about his coming? Well, the disciples would have naturally predicted, that; naturally assumed, that a prediction like what Jesus says in verse 2 would come uh, uh, surrounding events at the end of time. This big, stunning, beautiful, ornate temple with massive, important stones, how could it come down unless the whole cosmos were being shaken to the foundations? That's kind of how they would think about these things. And Jesus' answer to that assumption is kind of a yes and a no. Is this the end? Like, when this temple comes down, is it the end? Well, no, in the sense that great... Swaths of time will actually separate this event from the end. We're living in that period. He has not come back yet. But yes, in the sense that the New Testament considers the whole era between Jesus' two advents as the last days. And so in one sense, it does make sense for him to go from talking about a near-term thing, AD 70, to then suddenly jumping and talking about the end of everything, the future, even from our perspective, as I believe he does in this chapter. And sometimes predictive prophecies in the Bible do that. you have a prophet talking about the future, and, and the way he says it, it kind of sounds like it's all kind of at once or in sequence. And as you get to it, you realize it's actually there's big, big gaps of time in between some of the things the prophets are saying. Uh, Acts 2.17, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out and Peter preaches uh, in that verse, he says that these are the last days in 1 Corinthians ten eleven, Paul is, is writing in the Corinthian church, and he calls them and us, the church, those on whom the end of the ages has come. Biblical perspective, this is the end. This is the last days. But it's a long period. So it's a yes and no. Is it all happening at once or not? Well, it's the same era, but it is separated by time. So that's kind of the logic in talking about the destruction of the temple and then suddenly talking about the return of Christ. Uh, One represents the ending of the old age, we could say the closing off of the old age, and the other represents the culmination of the new, the end of the end. Now this whole chapter, Mark 13, is written to help us understand how God's work in history has shifted from the old covenant to the new. In the old, you have uh, focus on temple and land and Israel, and what's happening today is that we have the gospel going forth to all the nations and building the church. Even in the Gospel of Mark, you have a very Israel-centered focus. Jesus uh, almost entirely keeps his ministry to Israel. He tells his disciples when he sends them out, only minister in Israel in chapter 6 and so on. So we have a very Israel-centered focus. How do we pivot to an era you see later in the New Testament where the disciples are going out into all the nations and preaching? Well, Mark 13 helps fill that, that in for us, that transition. This prophecy points forward to when God will dismantle Israel's religious system and demonstrate with unmistakable clarity that what he's doing in the world concerns not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles, all the nations. And this text also will tell us what to expect in the time between Christ's two advents. Uh, As we'll see, some of the things he says concern specific special events in the future, but some of the things he says are regarding general conditions that his disciples will face during this era before his return. Uh, and it's what could be more important as us as Christians, as disciples of Christ, than to understand how Jesus says, This is what the world's gonna be like. We should know that. And that's what he's gonna tell us. Now, I told you biblical eschatology can be a little confusing, a little intimidating, elusive. Mark 13 is widely considered to be the most difficult part of the book, and I concur. It can be tricky to put all the pieces together, and we need to recognize Christians hold different views regarding how to put these things together and what exactly Jesus is referring to at every point in his prophecy. Uh, There there are some differences regarding whether certain things have been fulfilled yet or not. Um, And as we proceed over the next three weeks, some um, some of the things that I say have already happened in the past, you might believe have not happened yet. And uh, others might think that some of the things I'm saying haven't yet happened have happened. There are some Christians who think that all this describes things in the past. And I actually believe there are some good weighty arguments for, for all of that. This is a tough one. But what I'm going to, with respect to those disagreements and those views, I'll present the reading that I'm convinced makes the most sense of all the pieces. But my prayer is that we come away on the one hand, deepened with with intellectual humility over our limitations and understanding and putting these things together, maybe with charity holding our different views, but yet confident that the main thrusts of the Bible's teaching on the future are really important for us and are really profitable to us. Because, again, they set our expectations for the present, what the world is, is to be like right now, what we should expect of the world, what to hope for in the future, and therefore how we purify our lives as we wait. But for now, I want to consider a bit longer what it means that Jesus accurately predicts the destruction of the temple almost four decades before that happens. Because again, nobody nobody else seemed to see that coming. It shocked his disciples that he would say something like that. Now, uh, traditionally, Christians reading the Bible have identified three offices of Christ that he fulfills that have roots in the Old Testament. These are uh, prophet, priest, and king. You may have heard of these three offices. These are all Old Testament uh, offices that, that are all kind of pointing in a different way to Jesus and the role that he would play. And we've seen a lot in Mark about Jesus' kingship. We've seen him announcing the kingdom of God. We've seen him calling people to follow him and assuming the identity of the son of David who fulfills kingly promises from the Old Testament. But here we see Jesus the prophet who is unveiling the future of God's plans for this city. And just like Jeremiah centuries earlier, he's, he's telling this sinful place that the Lord's judgment is coming in the form of invading foreign armies. It'll be very similar to when Babylon came. But Of course, he's not just like Jeremiah. Jesus is greater than Jeremiah and all the prophets. He's the one, Acts 3.18 says, to whom all the prophets bore witness. Hebrews 1, two tells us that in these last days, there we go, In these last days, God has climactically spoken to us in his son. This is the full and final disclosure of God to us, Jesus Christ. So here we have our trustworthy prophet of trustworthy prophets, Jesus, predicting an event that subsequently we know happened in history. And those stones were torn down one from the other in dramatic fashion. The disciples would have struggled to believe that such a wondrous place with such impressive stones could actually be torn apart. And I would invite you to consider if you're walking around in Washington, D.C., and you hear someone say, you like all these beautiful buildings? Well, in a few years, this whole city will be rubble. Now, we have the modern technology to make that kind of prediction more plausible. But even still, I would argue, I would suspect you'd feel pretty stunned to hear a prediction like that. You would have a hard time believing that. Can you imagine how this would have struck them? They didn't have nuclear warfare, bombs or anything. And he's saying, it's all coming down. But it happened. Because Jesus is a trustworthy prophet. He's faithful. His words do not fall flat. They hold true. Psalm 1830 tells us, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Again, it's not just a doctrinal truth. God's words are true. Amen, they are. Application point. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. You can get underneath his shield of protection. You can trust him. Entrust yourself fully to him because his words are true. We can trust Jesus because he speaks true, reliable, faithful, divine words. And we can take refuge in him knowing he will never deceive or mislead us in any of his promises or proclamations. Do you ever entertain doubts in your heart or maybe even more than entertaining doubts, maybe you're haunted by doubts that the yet unfulfilled promises of scripture, whether they may not come to pass, whether this is all just a big misunderstanding, a big lie. Do you ever look up at the sky and think, yeah, I just don't know if Jesus is going to come back. just don't know if it's real. Do you look around at this messy and cursed and broken world and think maybe this is all there is. Maybe there's no Christ coming back to judge and to consummate his redeeming work. Maybe the heavens never will come down and merge with earth in a new creation. Our text and the subsequent historical events once again challenge us, hasn't he been right before? You can trust the words of one who has been right before. Now, today is the Super Bowl. And uh, the sports media world has generated countless words of analysis and prediction. There are certain experts who pride themselves on making an annual pick to pick the winner and uh, some of them are pretty good at picking the winner. There's some people with a very good track record of being accurate. And there's a certain analyst that I read about recently named Peter Schrager who has correctly picked the f- last four Super Bowl winners before the season started. That's pretty good. And uh, that's the last four completed Super Bowls. And then this year, the fifth, he predicted before this season that the Chiefs and 49ers would play in the Super Bowl. And he was right. Now, I regret to inform you informing me he picked the Chiefs to win. Uh, make of that what you will. But this guy, no one can doubt, this guy has amazing talent for picking winners. Now, when a guy like that has shown himself to be right in significant and detailed ways, you start listening. You start respecting his opinion. Now, this football example is trivial. It does not matter. I'm sorry. It does not matter. <laughs> And he's not using supernatural knowledge. He's, not, he's just a guy who knows a lot about football. It's, it's impressive. But how much greater when Jesus predicts the downfall. And as we'll see in verse 30, he says, in this generation, within a generation, of a temple complex that stunned all its visitors as one of the architectural triumphs of the ancient world. There are quotes in the ancient world of people saying, you've never seen a fine building until you've seen that Jerusalem temple. The point is, we can trust Jesus' words. We can trust his words. And as his church, whom he's redeemed and made his own, we can trust them for our good. We can take refuge under his shield of his promises that he is for us, that he will bring to completion the work he has begun in us, that he's going to return and finish our redemption, not only of our fallen bodies of all, but of all heaven and earth. And we can trust his promises that our light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But we can also trust his words of doom, his words of warning, his words promising hell and destruction for those outside of the ark of his salvation. And this prophecy about Jerusalem is a message of doom that's what he's saying he's not promising salvation right here he's saying the temple is coming down and he has given other promises of doom through for instance his apostle paul in second thessalonians 1 he says uh he speaks against those who do not obey the gospel of our lord jesus who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day these are trustworthy words of eternal destruction outside of salvation. If you're not safe in Jesus Christ by faith, then his trustworthy words predict your downfall. On his behalf, we urge you to turn and trust him today while there is time. Trust him today. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. Are you being careless in your standing before God as though you won't face future judgment and accountability? Let Jerusalem instruct you. Let their example instruct you. That his words prove true. So as the rejected cornerstone, Jesus rejects the stones, and as the true prophet, Jesus tells the future. The third and final role we see is that as the Son of God, Jesus is heaven come down. As the Son of God, Jesus is heaven come down. In some ways, we're dropping the other shoe from that first point we made about the temple. We saw Jesus rejecting the temple, and then now we ask, well, what takes its place? Well, here we address that question. The answer is, it's Jesus' body. And I mean that answer in two ways, related but distinct. First, it's his physical body, where the eternal word, uh, the divine son, became flesh. And made the divine glory uniquely accessible to us. The body of Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the new temple. And secondly, it's his spiritual body, his church of believers who are united to him because we share his Holy Spirit. We've been baptized into the body of Christ by sharing his spirit. You see, we have to kind of back up and ask, well, what is the temple anyways? What it's about? What is it about? And we read that long text out of Second um, Corinthians that was showing us what the temple is about. This is the dedication of Solomon's temple, and it's all about, this is where God is. And so we pray, we face this temple, and we pray, and we seek God. This is the dwelling of his glory, even though there's an acknowledgement that God transcends time and space. It's not like he's contained here. But there's a special way that his presence and glory are housed in this place. That's what the temple is. That's what the tabernacle was that they made in the wilderness. That's what Solomon's temple is. And now this is Herod's temple, which is kind of just a later version of the same thing. It's a place where God's glory dwells and where people meet him for worship. But we've already seen in Mark that Jesus is God's place of glorious dwelling on earth. I'll, I'll remind you again of the transfiguration. They're on that mountain in chapter 9. And Peter sees Jesus' glory, this shining, awesome, glorious display of Jesus. And what does he kind of instinctively say? He says, let's build tabernacles, Jesus, for you and Elijah and Moses. He's thinking temple, because glory is here. There's something temple about Jesus that he especially saw at the transfiguration. Back in Isaiah 64.1, in view of Israel's sin and coming judgment, and the looming destruction of the temple, among other things, the prophet called out to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And rend is just uh, an old way of saying tear. That God, you would tear open the heavens and come down. It's a cry for God to come near and to involve himself even more intimately in his people for our salvation. When will God tear the heavens open and come down? I'll remind you of Jesus' baptism in Mark 1, verses 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Where does heaven touch earth? Where's the temple? Is Jesus the divine son? So by this time in Mark, we're, we, we hear about, by the time we hear about the temple coming down in Mark 13, we're ready to consider that Jesus himself is its replacement. Now this theological thread is drawn even, even more explicitly in John. We're told in his Prologue, John 1.14, that the word became flesh and dwelled or tabernacled among us, and that is the person of Jesus. So temple language used there as well of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. But now that he's ascended to heaven and he's poured out his spirit, it's not only the physical body of Jesus, but the spiritual body of Christ, his church, that houses the presence of God. That's why we read in Ephesians 2.22 that you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are this corporate container that houses glory in a way that even uh, any of us individually uh, doesn't, doesn't in the same way show the glory of God as the church, even though individually we do have the Holy Spirit. Because the temple rejected Jesus, God has rejected the temple. In his presence and the incarnate son, Jesus has exceeded and made obsolete the temporary shadows of the sanctuary building. It's now us, the spirit-filled people of God, who house his glory by being united to Christ and to one another. Now you might be wondering, how? How does the church show the glory of God? How is it that this ordinary place of ordinary people is like the new temple that far outstrips the old temple in its glory no one certainly uh with due respect to those who built this building and served us so wonderfully nobody shows up to this building and says look at this building wow (laughs) it's not the architecture how does the even ordinary river city grace house the glory of god and i'll say stay tuned for our new member affirmation in a few moments Listen to the membership commitments that we make to one another, and, and imagine a community that's redeemed by Christ, that's being constantly renewed by his spirit, that's striving to live, as that document describes, as imperfectly, and we're all growing big time, as imperfectly as we do, but it's a beautiful thing, and if you've been walking with us by God's grace, you've, you've tasted that. It is a beautiful thing that God's glory is here as it is nowhere else. Not here, River City Grace any church that holds to the gospel. Now these changes are permanent. There will never be another physical temple again. The real has come and forever displaced the former types and shadows. We're not waiting for anyone to build another temple in Jerusalem or anywhere else. And if they did, I would argue it it would be for a false religion. God's glory is in the person of Christ, in his body, his physical body, and his body, the church, his spiritual body. And this is why Israel rejecting Jesus led to such a dramatic outcome as the temple, and then, of course, the city around it being torn down, because Jesus is the presence of God, and the presence of God was always the whole point of Israel's temple and religion. In rejecting Christ, they took the whole the whole substance of their covenant and their life before God, and they rejected it in favor of shadows and outward forms. They kept the shell and they threw away the nut. They got it totally backward. And we can do that too in any kind of Christless religion that it's worthless today. And this is a warning against thinking that any way we might seek God or commune with God or relate to God that isn't squarely centered on the Lord Jesus Christ it's worthless. We can't please God apart from Christ. We can't know God apart from Christ. We can't be saved and enjoy heaven apart from Christ. There is no such thing as heaven apart from Christ. What you imagine the future to be, the glorious future, is it Christless? Is it just great stuff forever? It's not heaven without Christ. We can't be moral apart from from Christ. We can't change apart from Christ. All of the outward and showy stuff that I mentioned in that first point are our, our, our media savvy, our public piety, or whatever, to the extent that it isn't filled with Christ, it is utterly worthless. Would you rather eat canned spinach than fresh spinach? Who would rather eat canned salmon than fresh salmon sashimi? Uh, for for years of my life as a child, I only knew spinach in its canned variety, and I thought I hated spinach until <laughs> I started having salads with fresh spinach, and I was like, oh, spinach can be pretty good. The canned version of food is like the types and shadows. It's, it's okay if it's all you have, but when the real thing comes, when the substance comes, who would choose the old over it? It's backwards. Friends, let us never make the mistake of, Switching outward stuff of any kind for the substance of Christ. Isn't that the drumbeat we've been hearing from Colossians over and over, as Greg's been bringing Colossians before our minds? All these versions of spirituality, all these versions of maturity that Christians might, might cook up for ourselves. But if it's apart from Christ, it's an illusion. It's false. So here's the heart test. Do I want Christianity without Jesus? If I think what Christianity gives me is ultimate life purpose, structure, a social network, moral teaching, a sense of being a part of something bigger than myself, adherence uh, to personal or family tradition, these are all fine things, but if this is what Christianity is about for me, I am choosing shadow over substance. And other examples could multiply. In Christ... In Christ, the substance has come. Heaven has broken into earth. And communion with him in faith, in prayer, in worship around his word, both publicly, corporately together, and individually, this is the earth's best preview of heaven. This is the closest we get to heaven, is nearness to Jesus. So, friends, brothers and sisters, let's fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. As the center of the Christian faith, Jesus Christ is the center of all our religious attendance and observation, uh, I mean observance and private disciplines. So do outward things, come to church, uh, read your Bible things. I'm not against outward things, but if it's about Christ, it's about having our eyes fixed on Jesus as the center not only of our faith, but of our lives completely. God's presence is not in the buildings of craftsmen, but in the body of Christ. God rejected Israel's religion because it finally had no room for him. His fullest revelation, Jesus Christ, did not find the welcome that he deserved, but rather he found a fruitless tree. The temple came down because Christ's body, both his physical and his spiritual body, is where God has established a new place where his glory dwells on earth. So let's value Jesus as the great treasure of the church. Let's value the church as the great place of beauty in all of God's creation. Jesus' words about Jerusalem's downfall were accurate, and we'll find out more about that in the weeks to come. But for now, we live in this world and we await the fulfillment of God's promises with confidence that his words will prove true. And we find both stinging warnings and warm refuge in the trustworthy words of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus as a humble savior and as a trustworthy prophet. And my uh, immediate prayer is that every soul in here would heed Christ, would do what you said of the Transfiguration Mountain and listen to your beloved son. That if anyone is in the crosshairs of divine judgment for unforgiven sin, those who have not yet come to Jesus in faith, we pray that they would heed his words and come with bended knee and trust him and receive in him all forgiveness, all assurance of eternal life. And we pray that we would trust him afresh, we who know him, to remember his promises and to be secure in them and to know that we're in his tight grip, that he died for us, that he'll never let us go, and that every word will prove true. How that could guard our lives and secure us against fears and anxieties, only you know the extent of that, God, in our lives. We pray we would believe him, and we pray we would have the eyes to see the glory of his dwelling in our midst in the church. Even as we're about to affirm new members, may we revel in the goodness of what you're doing in showing yourself and in your dwelling here in the church, a people redeemed by Christ. We pray all this for his glory. Amen.